I remember when we got to Karanga Valley, uh, which is around day six of the climb, uh, and I got to camp close to uh, 6 p.m. at night and just looking down at the valley uh, and you see all of Africa below you. You're, I fell to my knees thinking, this, I, I can't comprehend the beauty. And it was amazing. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 178, Jeff Timmons talks about his two ascents of Mount Kilimanjaro. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis. Mount Kilimanjaro is Africa's highest peak, extending 19,341 feet above sea level. As the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, it's made up of three volcanic cones, the highest being Kibo, which is currently dormant. Although Kibo hasn't erupted in 360,000 years, there's always a chance it could go again someday. On today's show, Jeff Timmons talks about his ascent of Mount Kilimanjaro and his unique way of funding his amazing adventure. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much, Travis. Yeah, it's good to have you. So let's dig into Kilimanjaro, but before we do, I want to just have you fill our audience in on your background a little bit. Um, we get all kinds on the show. Some are professional uh, mountain climbers, and that's all they do. Some are uh, weekend warriors. They have a nine-to-five job, and they get out and, uh, and do some things on the side, and some are, you know, run up the middle um, of adventure. So who are you? I mean, how did you – what is your adventure lifestyle? I guess you could call me a, a weekend warrior. Uh, I'm kind of boring. I have a nine to five job at a bank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but to reduce that uh, boringness, if you will, it's in the marketing group. So I get to see a lot of fun things and um, still be cu- quite creative. Um, but yeah, weekend warrior sounds great. Whenever I have a chance to go out for an adventure, I do. And vacation times throughout the year, I'll try to do like a backpacking trip or uh, something that will inspire me for when I come back to the office. Okay. Well, I think that pretty much sums up uh, most of us. That's that's me, and that's my co-host, and I think that's many of our, our listeners out there. So we're all in the same group for sure. But those are the, some of the neatest ones to, to hear about. Somebody that does live the normal life, 9 to 5, uh, but manages to get out and, and do some awesome adventures like yours on Kilimanjaro. So. Let's uh, let's go into what it is that kicked off your first trip. You actually have climbed Kilimanjaro twice, so tell us a little bit about Kilimanjaro and what it is that inspired you to to actually get out and, and attempt to climb it yourself. Sure. Uh, so a little bit of background. Uh, for the last nine years, I've been a huge supporter of the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation, and every year they have a a five k run. Uh, across Canada, over 60 different uh, cities across Canada. And it's uh, a run to raise awareness about breast cancer and, of course, to raise funds to help create uh, a future without breast cancer. And over the years, I've participated in the run and I've raised, you know, significantly each year a little bit more money for the cause. And uh, one year, a friend of mine said, you know what, I'll, I'll donate $100 if you wear a pink dress in the run. <laughs> so whatever that's a hundred bucks right well i'm like okay a hundred bucks it's great for the cause so i said you know what what i'll do is i'll get all of my friends involved and i said if i raise two thousand dollars i'll wear the dress uh so long story short i donned on the pink dress and ran 5k through the streets of toronto and uh, we raised just over two grand for the foundation and after that run a lot of people said well how are you going to top that for next year and i really didn't know how I was going to top it or what the next challenge would be. Um, and then if we fast forward maybe a couple of months later, I saw a tweet online about the foundation looking to create their own team to climb Kilimanjaro. Um, and when I was growing up, I read a, a lot of books about climbing like Into Thin Air and Everest and uh, some great inspirational books that make your mind go, whoa, does this stuff really exist? And, you know, is this something that I would be 
willing to to take on. So not taking on Everest, but Kilimanjaro seems a little safer. Uh, and I thought, you know what, maybe I'll, I'll look into this Kilimanjaro climb. And that's how I first got uh, introduced to Kili. And um, within about 24 hours, I did my research and watched a few videos online. I was hooked and signed up on the spot and uh, didn't know where to start. I really wasn't a very physical, active guy beforehand, you know, working nine to five at a desk job. You, you know, go out for a run here and there, but didn't really know where to start. Um, so that's what kind of kicked off the whole Kilimanjaro adventures. So, yeah, I mean, I was telling you before the interview that I, to be completely candid, I didn't know much about Kilimanjaro. I knew where it was. I knew it was the tallest peak in Africa. And that was about it. It's where it ended. And I was out of curiosity and preparing for the interview. I, I watched a documentary and, and looked up some stuff on Kilimanjaro. And I just really got immersed and fascinated with this mountain. I think the the neatest thing, the most intriguing thing about this is you can get up there and you can reach altitudes, you know, close to 20,000 feet without risking your life like Everest. You know, Everest is not my speed anymore. I don't know if it ever was, but, you know, I have no ambitions to climb Everest. But um, just to to be able to experience that kind of altitude and that kind of uh, lengthy ascent uh, up one of the, the world's tallest mountains is, uh, is and it be achievable for most of us is what drew me into it and what, uh, what made me want to interview in the first place. Yeah, definitely. I, I would second that. And, you know, when I did my research, I was quite amazed at how high it was. You know, I've done some skiing here and there in Utah, and I remember experiencing shortness of breath at the higher uh, altitudes, you know, 8,000, 9,000 feet. But looking at 19,000 feet, it was like, how how much of a difference is it really going to be? So that kind of uh, worried me slightly. But, you know, doing some more research and preparing for for six months before the climb, I was I was definitely ready for the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about preparing for it. What is it you felt you needed to do to get ready to climb Kilimanjaro? And do you think it was the right amount of preparation or would you change anything? <laughs> uh, well, it's a good question. For the first climb, uh, I had no clue what to do. I did uh, research online. I talked to a few people and everyone had their own idea of what training should be like. Um, so I just went full out. I went to the gym five days a week. On the weekends, I would go hiking. My gym time would consist of maybe one to two hours each day doing cardio and weight training. Um, and I, like, like I mentioned earlier, I wasn't very physically active. So not knowing what to do at the gym, getting a buddy to help me out. And, and then closer to the climb, I started uh, you know, wearing a, an altitude mask that would help simulate the altitude at certain points on Kilimanjaro. And I'd leverage that to during my training at the gym or while I was doing 10K or 14K runs uh, around the city. Um, yeah, and the, the training would last anywhere between six to eight months. And, you know, the first time climbing, I think perhaps I overdid it with the training, but it definitely prepared me for uh, what to expect on the mountain. And the second time I climbed Kilimanjaro, I definitely eased up on the training, but, you know, that's another story. <laughs> don't, do it. <laughs> don't do it because, you know, you, you get your mind all caught up in it thinking, you know, I've done it once before, so I really don't got to train that hard. And, you know, I, I did have a little bit of uh, difficulty on, on the second climb, but um, <laughs> lessons learned, right? Yeah, well, bef- better to overtrain and uh, and be able to deal with it than to undertrain and, and be sucking wind when you finally get up there. That's right. That's right. I didn't realize there was such a thing as an altitude mask. So is it, does it just limit the oxygen as you're training, as you're working out to simulate it? Yeah, that's exactly it. What it does is it restricts the airflow um, and you have the ability to, to change certain pieces within the mask that simulate different altitude levels. Uh, <laughs> it's just It goes over your, your face just like a, um, like a painter's mask almost. It doesn't right. have to be attached to any apparatus. Um and yeah, would I do it again? Definitely. I think it definitely helped, uh, prepare and make it, uh, make it more real lifelike. Like I remember the first time I, I got it in the mail and I turned it to the, the highest setting. So I think <laughs> 18,000 feet and I put it on and I didn't even have a chance to think of what was happening. My body instinctively just took it off after about 30 seconds 
just because the, the lack of oxygen that was that I was able to breathe or not not able to breathe was mind blowing. And you know that kind of frightened me slightly, thinking, well, if I can't breathe this now, I, really have <laughs> right. of, I, I have a lot of time to to train, and I definitely need to you know bump up my training schedule with this mask. So slowly but surely, I would you know use it at the gym or wear it while I was watching TV on my uh, non-gym days. Um, but it definitely helped. Yeah, that's funny. I guess my take would be if I couldn't breathe in it now, I said, forget it, I'm not going to do this. But, <laughs> but you yes. actually saw it as a, a, okay, if I can't breathe now, I need to I need to use this and I need to train for this adequately. That, that makes a lot more sense. Definitely experienced that a few times. <laughs> that's funny. So let's go into um, the environment of Kilimanjaro. One of the, the neatest and most surprising things I realized was how many ecosystems Kilimanjaro is actually made up of. Um, you know, this is, you know, many mountains at this altitude are, you're hiking in snow and more snow, but Kilimanjaro has alpine desert, rainforest, farmland, shrubland, and of course the, the summit, which is an Arctic environment. So, Relay that a little bit, explain that or describe that to people that may not know and what it is they might experience uh, on this climb. Yeah, definitely. I think you hit the nail on the head. There are five different ecosystems uh, that you trek through, and each ecosystem has its own type of vegetation or lack thereof, uh, different animals and different uh, insects that you'll experience. And the scenery that you experience on a daily basis blows your mind. Like I remember... Each day getting to camp uh, at the end of the night, I would look at the scenery and think, man, I can't believe the scenery. It just you know brings tears to your eyes and you think it can never get better than this. And the second day when you get to new camp, the scenery is even better than the day before and it just gets better and better and better. And to the point where I remember when we got to um, Karanga Valley, uh, which is around day six of the climb, uh, and I got to camp close to uh, 6 p.m. at night and just looking down at the valley uh, and you see all of Africa below you, you're, I fell to my knees thinking, this I, I can't comprehend the beauty. And it was amazing. Um, so starting off in like day one, you walk through the rainforest and that's uh, about 9,000 feet. Uh, so lush greenery and at least for this particular climb, actually, because there are different routes that you can take for uh, summiting Kilimanjaro. Uh, I climbed the the Lamosha route. So this particular climb takes about seven days to summit. And on day one, you're at the rainforest and lush greens. You're going through some some glades. It's great, wonderful uh, atmosphere, very damp and hot. You're looking at about, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 degrees Celsius. What is that? Maybe 75 degrees Fahrenheit. On day three, you're getting a little higher. You're at about 11,400 feet. And uh, this day, it's more plain land, a lot of dirt, gravel, some shrubbery here and there. But the the main canopy of the rainforest is gone now. And you can now see um, further throughout the distance uh, along where you're at. Um, day four, when we're looking at like the Shira Plateau, you're getting to more rocky terrain, um, and you're reaching heights of about 12,500 feet. Um, some spectacular, uh, images over, um, some ridges, which is fantastic. Like, it's just amazing. Unfortunately, I don't have the words to describe how beautiful it is. On day five, you're looking at, you know, about 12,800 feet and this time you're, you're getting close to more uh, sheer rock and the gravel is very loose there isn't much vegetation maybe a few plants here or there sprouts uh, uh, around and uh, you might see a few lizards here and there um, day six when, when you're on the Baronka wall like the, the Karanga Valley you're about 14,000 feet and it's just sheer rock everywhere there's no vegetation at all um day seven when you get to summit base camp you're just walking on sheer rock it's very slippery because the rock is constantly moving underneath your feet um, and of course the temperature at this point is uh, about freezing uh depending you know when the light when the sun is out 
you can experience maybe 10 degrees, 5 degrees Celsius. Um, and then when the, uh, the sun drops, it will drop to about, you know, minus 10 degrees Celsius. Yeah, that's crazy. So you essentially go, you know, start from rainforest and go up through uh, all kinds of environments to end up in moonscape and, and ultimately Arctic uh, environments. And When you're doing summit night, you're, you're right, Arctic environment would be a great way to describe it. Um, as you're doing summit night, you're, you're walking through more sheer rock and then larger boulders. And when you hit summit, you have glaciers surrounding you and the temperature up there can, you know, range anywhere between minus 20 to to minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, Celsius. Right, right. Well, some of the, the vegetation um, was, really surprised me. It was like looking at a Dr. Seuss film, you know, or book, uh, you know, or looking around. I mean, some of these, these plants are so cool. I was looking at one called the Lobelia plant, I think it is. And when the, it, it's basically, almost looks like a, I don't know, it's almost like a, um, like a turnip or something like that, <laughs> where, but when the, at night, uh, when it gets cold out in the environment, it, it basically folds up and wraps all around itself. It keeps itself yeah. uh, warm and contained and then opens back up. And just looking at some of the imagery from uh, from that area is just uh, completely fascinating. It's like no other uh, mountain ascent I've ever come across. You're right. It, it definitely was fascinating. I remember our teammates stopping every five minutes taking photos of different um, vegetation and different plants and it's you're right it's it's mind blowing to see the the differences that uh that you come across while climbing when, when i remember before climbing before even reaching africa i thought oh it'll be you know mountain climbing it's just rock there's no vegetation there's no trees anywhere but i was quite surprised when we arrived at the rainforest and just everything is green and damp and 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 smells fresh and then as you climb each day, you see different uh, environments, which definitely changes the uh, the experience. Right, right. So you said it took about seven days to, to get up there. Uh, how long is that distance? Do you remember? Oh, boy. Um, I can tell you hours. Uh, so most of the time we hiked anywhere between five to, to eight hours. Uh, some days were a little longer. Uh, for example, I think there was one day in there where we had about 11 or 12 hours of hiking. Um, and then summit night is the longest. You're looking at about, I don't know, 20 to 22 hours. Mm, wow. Uh, and the reason behind that is by the time you get to summit base camp, uh, you arrive to base camp maybe around 5, 6 p.m. in the evening. You have, uh, a little bit of a little bit of a break before dinner. You have uh, dinner, and then after dinner, you do like a briefing with your your crew, and then you're sent back to your tent to try to try to sleep. And of course, you can't do that because you're just so pumped up. Uh, yeah, of course. And they wake you up or take you out of the tents by 11 p.m. So you've really only had maybe two hours of sleep. And uh, from 11 p.m. until about 7:30, 8 a.m., you're climbing. Uh, you get to see the sunrise, uh, and then by about 8.39 a.m., you reach summit. You're up summit for maybe five, ten minutes, and then you have to head back down to uh, base camp. So that's another eight hours or so. So you're really climbing for about 20 to, to 22 hours. Yeah, that makes for a long day. So over seven days at that that rate, you're probably, I would guess you're somewhere in the neighborhood of a 50-mile um, track one way to get up there from the sounds of it. Right. Yeah, that sounds right. So you referred to they a lot. I think uh, it basically alludes to a, a guide service, right? I assume you guys went up with guides? Yes, we did. Okay. Would uh, you would you say this is doable without guides or should somebody just always plan on hiring a guide to take them up there? I highly recommend bringing a guide. Um, it's just they have so much knowledge behind them and they make the experience that much more memorable. Um, and of course, safety first, right? Uh, right. Being a guide, you learn so much, not only about the mountain, um, but you also learn about the people of Tanzania and you become great friends afterwards. You, you have this fantastic bonding experience on the mountain and you can't replicate that. You can't build that without the guide. And I, I would highly recommend hiring a, a crew to, to bring you up. When the, uh, the first time I climbed, the team that I was put on 
there were uh, 25 climbers. And to support the 25 climbers, we had um, approximately 75 support staff. So that included about 11 guides, cooks, a medic, uh, and the rest porters to help uh, bring your, your gear up to each camp, set it up at camp, prepare your meals, um, and then just, of course, make sure that uh, you're doing well. And if you can't carry your own gear, you know, your own day pack, they would support you in, in that uh, throughout the climb. Yeah, and you mentioned a medic, which is a good point. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, some little simple mountain. We're talking nearly 20,000 feet. So, you know, oxygen depletion is is a real issue. And some people, if they're lucky, will simply get turned around due to, uh, you know, altitude sickness. But there have been people that have perished up on that mountain at the same time. So it's probably, you know, just to have that medic with you, you know, much less the local knowledge and everything that you alluded to uh, is probably a good idea, like you said. Yeah, the um, the medic is definitely is there to to keep everyone safe and sound, and um, they definitely play a big part in making sure people arrive to the summit um, successfully. And right. each each team that we had, there you're always going to experience something. Everyone has a different experience on the mountain uh, physically. Uh, you have to watch out for certain signs to make sure that you're not going into dangerous territory with your body. And the moment those signs start appearing, the medic is there to make a decision and make an informed decision based off of their, their background and knowledge and say, you know what, it's time for you to head back down or, you know, maybe you should stay at camp for the day and help acclimatize before you move forward because it's not safe uh, the moment you start seeing um, issues. Yeah, that's a good point. And they're trained to recognize that where many of us wouldn't be. Um, it happens all the time. And we just down in, in Arizona this past weekend, we saw four very athletic people uh, die just simply because of heat, heat exhaustion. And you wouldn't think somebody that's you know used to being an athlete out there constantly and in, in, in the environment uh, would have issues with that. But it happens, you know, and sometimes we just don't recognize the, the signs and to have somebody there with on your crew that, that can recognize that and hopefully help you out of that situation before something bad happens is probably well worth the, the money that you pay to have a guide out there. Definitely. Have you heard of the Sayuai Iris 4G action camera? It's Adventure Sports' first always-connected camera using mobile 4G LTE networks. Push a single button and you kick off a live stream to your friends, family, and fans so they can join you on your crazy adventures. See for yourself how it works. Visit live.sioi.com and sign up for free. Follow some of their professional mountain bikers, skimboarders, motocross riders, and of course adventurers, and join in on the fun as it happens. That's live.sioeye.com. Hey folks, be sure to swing by 180tac.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi-fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail-proof on your adventure. These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180tack.com to find your next camp stove. So one of the the things that drew me uh, drew my interest towards you was the way that you raised money to do this. Um, it's a way that I have not ever seen, but I was pretty fascinated by the option and the reason I wanted to bring you on and have you bring it up is because a lot of people out there, like we say, are nine to fivers and you know maybe just you know struggling to make ends meet to begin with and are thinking, well, it's great. This sounds like a great trip, but I really just don't have that kind of cash to throw at it. Um, 
you found an alternative, a way to, to get up there without having to uh, rob the bank account to do so. So how did you go about that? Oh, great. So when I signed up for the challenge, I had just purchased a house and um, really did not expect the cost uh, to hit me as hard as it did. And um, I had to come up with some alternative ways to, to raise funds for the climb. And uh, I was doing the, the climb for a charity event to raise money for the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. So not only did I have to worry about my costs, but I also had to hit a certain fundraising level in order to participate. Um, so what I did was with the, the new home that I purchased, I had a spare bedroom. And I thought, you know what, I've heard uh, some great things about Airbnb. I've traveled on Airbnb as a guest, uh, and I've stayed in people's homes uh, while traveling around the world. Why not list my guest room on Airbnb and use the money from there to help pay for the, the climb? And, you know, I was a little apprehensive at first letting strangers in my home and, you know, not knowing how to really deal with anything. Um, but I, tr- I gave it a try, and I remember the first weekend I tried it out, I hosted uh, this couple from, um, from Germany uh, who were traveling to Toronto, and uh, I think that first weekend I earned like $240, and I was shocked at how much money I was able to raise just for hosting two people. And I immediately used that money to buy the boots that I needed for the climb. Um, and then the next weekend I hosted another couple from, I think it was Spain. And that weekend I used those funds earned to buy some of the gear that I needed for the climb. And each time I hosted someone, I would use all the money that I uh, earned from that to help pay for the gear or the climbing costs or the flight or the, uh, vaccines that I needed. And slowly but surely I was, it was, I was able to pay off the entire trip by hosting people on Airbnb. Um, and a, a secondary bonus to that was in explaining to my guests why I was climbing Kilimanjaro, the guests also wanted to become part of this great movement. And because uh, I was climbing for charity, the guests started donating to the charity itself. And a light bulb went off thinking, you know what, I have to also fundraise X amount of dollars in order to participate. So after I've paid off all of my expenses for Kilimanjaro, I started hosting or I continued to host and uh, the funds that I earned from all of those guests, I would donate to the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation uh, to ensure that I hit my fundraising goal. Um, and then, of course, I'd inform the guests that I was fundraising and then they would also want to participate as well. So it just became this amazing community event built from my home where people were coming to stay. They were helping me pay off my uh, Kilimanjaro climb expenses and they were donating to charity. And I've just made this into an ongoing uh, piece. Now I've been hosting for a few years now and since hosting, I've, I've made it part of my hosting experience for my guests to make an automatic donation to the Canadian breast cancer foundation now for every host that I, sorry, for every guest that I host, um, so that they feel that not only are they coming to Toronto and enjoying the community life and living like a local, but they're also helping the local community uh, with that donation to the foundation. Uh, that is awesome. That is brilliant. Yeah, I definitely wanted you to bring that up because it's, uh, I mean, that story in and of itself is is inspiration just to, to you may not be a person that can do the Airbnb route, but there are other things you can do to find and raise money to to do this. I mean, to help charity, but also get your yourself on an adventure that you've always dreamed of going on. So I'm thinking, you know, I got I got two kids. They're each in their own bedroom. So I think I might kick them out, you know, move <laughs> them into our bedroom, rent out their rooms. I mean, we're talking, what, $500 a month here from the sounds of it. Not even a month. That no. might be a weekend. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's quite crazy how much you can bring in. And it's great because you're right. It does fund uh, your travel. And I use the funds now to fund all of my adventures. Now uh, we went to my fiance and I, we went to uh, Japan for several weeks uh, last year. Um, we went to Iceland, we went to Paris. So all of the money that I'm earning now from Airbnb helps support my travel bug that I have now. And who knows where it's going to take me next. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Too cool. Well, you talked about the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation, and you, you've been raising money for quite a while, but you had some pretty staggering numbers from the, the Kilimanjaro trips. Do you care to share that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the first climb, I uh, was able to raise uh, 70, over $7,400 uh, for the foundation. And after that trip, you know, t- to be totally honest to, to all the listeners here, when you're done climbing Kilimanjaro, you just want to be off that mountain. And you say to yourself, I'm never going to do this again. This is a crazy idea. I'm so tired and I'm sick and I want to get off the mountain. But when you get back home and you've had time to think about it rationally, you begin to realize that you missed the challenge. And never once did I think I would climb it a second time. But in telling everyone the stories of climbing Kilimanjaro, when I came back, it inspired so many other people to want to try to climb. Um, so what I did was I created a team, and we climbed it a second time. And this time I brought my own team of uh, 14 people. And together, not only did we climb Kilimanjaro, but it was also a fundraising event where we raised over $111,000 for the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. Wow, that is amazing. I mean, uh, over 118000 that you've been a part of for the Breast Cancer Foundation. That is, uh, that is truly, truly a, a great thing. Good on you for doing that. Thank you. So what do you, do you remember what it costs to go down there? So if one person wanted to go down and be part of a guided group going up, what could somebody uh, look at as far as expenses for, for the whole package if they were going to go from, the, from North America? North, roughly yeah so on average i would say it would cost anywhere between three to five thousand dollars um canadian so let's drop that down a bit for the u.s for the folks in the u.s so let's say maybe two to four thousand american okay um and in that breakdown i would say you know put at least a thousand dollars for your flight to tanzania um you're looking at about $2,000 to $2,500 uh, to hire a crew um, or to go with an organization to climb Kilimanjaro. And in that, it would cover the costs of your um, Kilimanjaro park uh, entry fee, your tent rental, your sleeping bag, um, your food for every day, your drink for every day. And of course, the climb uh, leads, the guides, the medic, and the uh, the, the cooks. Uh, in addition to that, you might want to put, depending if you're starting out new, you might have to purchase some equipment like I did. So a good pair of boots, um, don't cheap out on them. You want to spend anywhere between 100 to $200 for your boots. Um, you'll need some day packs, you'll need some bags, and you'll need some uh, other equipment that you may not have, like uh, some winter wear, if you will. Um, yeah, so just under 5K, I think, is a, is a good number to to benchmark a good climb. Um, and there are plenty of companies out there that are willing to, to take you out on a team. And I highly recommend climbing with a team because you can learn so much more from other people. And it's just a great team building uh, bonding experience um, to see your teammates um, succeed in, in their challenge and, and, you know, helping everyone out. It's just a, it's a fantastic experience. So, Companies like uh, G Adventures or Charity Challenge, those are the, that's the company that I went with. Uh, they focus all of their challenges on raising funds for a charity and giving you a discounted rate uh, for their challenge. Uh, so definitely look into Charity Challenge. Okay, cool. Yeah, I can definitely see the benefits of going up with a group and being able to share that experience with others. And even if you're an introvert, you know, branch out and, and go do that. Because I've mentioned that makes the trip that much better. Yeah, it does for sure. Earlier on before the interview, you were mentioning being up there uh, two different times. You could actually tell that the, the glacier uh, glaciers were eroding just between the two times you've been up and they're estimating, what did we say in another, you know, 2020 or 2022, something like that, that, uh, that they expect the glaciers to be completely gone up there. Um, share a little bit about what you saw up there and maybe some other things you learned about Kilimanjaro or the area that people might not be aware of. Sure. Um, so climbing the first time, I was made aware that the glaciers uh, were receding 
at a, a very fast pace. And when researching before the climb, I took a look at a bunch of photos to see what I should prepare myself for. And even just doing a quick Google search uh, and looking at summit photos, you'll notice a difference in the time frame for people posting photos from like the 80s, 90s, uh, and just recently. Um, and I, it really, it really made me think about, you know, global warming in general. Like we always hear about global warming and, you know, how it's affecting every part of the world. And I didn't think it would have an effect at such a high altitude. You know, you always think higher the altitude, it's always cold up there and, uh, we shouldn't really worry about that. But, you know, I was wrong experiencing it firsthand. The first time I, I noticed it, I remember seeing the glaciers, uh, on summit nights and I was, I was awestruck with the beauty and the magnificence of it all and, and how high, like stories and stories high of, uh, ice just packed on to each other and, uh, it was everywhere. And then two years later, we climb it with the team and, uh, I definitely noticed the difference in the height of, uh, the glaciers and certain sections, uh, that I remember just embedded in my, in my mind from the first climb. And I was really looking forward to seeing the same scenery of, you know, the glaciers are going to be here on my left at this point. And when we got there, I was thinking, you know, where are they? Maybe I'm hallucinating or maybe I'm, I'm not seeing this straight, but I never did get to see it because they had melted at that point. And it, it really made me, you know, uh, appreciate the first time that I, I got to climb and, you know, if people are, if Kilimanjaro's on your bucket list, I highly recommend you go in the next five to 10 years because the locals who climb Kilimanjaro, you know, dozens of time a year tell everyone that the glaciers are, are, are receding at a very fast pace. And, um, within about 10 to 12 years, they don't think they'll be around. Wow. That's a, that's very sad and alarming. It is. Yeah. I mean, that some people say that the, the translation of Kilimanjaro loosely means mountain of white or white mountain, you know, and that's going to go away. You know, it's, yeah. uh, if they truly named that mountain after that, it's not going to be the mountain of white very long. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Bent Gate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bent Gate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bent Gate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bent Gate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. I wanted to take a moment and thank a couple of our most recent reviewers in iTunes. Uh, Charlesa recently said, I can't get enough. I love the interviews, great energy, and very inspiring. And Zachary Rev said, I was working a depressing nine to five in and out every day, and I started listening to this podcast, and now I'm cycling across the country and planning on hiking thousands of miles. I'm inspired. Thanks very much, guys, for leaving us those reviews in iTunes. We really do appreciate it, and it really does help. So the rest of you, please do us a huge favor and take a minute and go to iTunes and leave your own reviews. We'd love to hear from you, and it helps us in our ratings. Thanks for listening, and back to the show. So I looked up a few uh, fun facts about the the mountain, and you took seven days to get up there, um, or seven is this seven days to summit, right? And then seven, seven, yeah. seven days, seven back days okay. to summit, and two days down. Gotcha. Okay. So here's something fun: the fastest person to ever get up uh, to the top of Kilimanjaro took five hours, thirty eight minutes, and forty seconds. <laughs> 
Can you imagine that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? When we're climbing at a slow, slow pace, and while you're climbing, all of the guides and the porters are are yelling at you saying, pole, pole. Uh, But in Swahili, it means slowly, slowly. They want you to go as slow as possible with the acclimatization. But a lot of the porters are like beaming it at high speeds to beat you at the next camp so they can prepare everything for you and get you ready. And I remember seeing them running in sneakers up the mountain with, you know, 40 to 60 pounds of weight on their head and their <laughs> shoulders. And I'm like, man, I'm having a hard time just carrying this 10 pound pack. These guys are carrying 60 pounds of gear and they're running. <laughs> so I can, I can definitely uh, imagine that five hour, uh, run up Kilimanjaro. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, this is definitely a person that's highly acclimated for sure. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing like Everest or any of these things, you know, the Sherpas, they're just, they're just amazing, but it's what they do, you know, yeah. year in, year out in, uh, in just for the people that to get there once, you know, just to see them doing that and, uh, being that acclimated is just, uh, you know, you're awestruck, you know, yes, for lack of a better word. Okay. Um, so dangers of, the ascent. Obviously, there's some, you know, some issues with uh, exhaustion or altitude sickness. Did you really perceive anything else being dangerous as far as uh, the climb up Kilimanjaro? Um, you know, the first time I, like I mentioned, I didn't really know what to expect, but I, I tried to come prepared. So, you know, I did take um, some altitude meds uh, to prepare or offset uh, the potential of. Um, altitude sickness. I was using Dymox um, and then popping, you know, an Advil or a Tylenol here or there to help ward off any headaches. Um, but, you know, some of the, the team members on the first climb definitely had uh, some bad experiences. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult. No one knows how your body's going to react on Kilimanjaro. Um, on the first climb, we had uh, 25 members on the team. And by day three, um, we had to let, uh, one of our climbers go, uh, only because they were having a very difficult time breathing on the mountain. Um, so they were sent off the mountain and then maybe a day afterwards, another member of our team experienced uh, significant sickness, uh, where the altitude was just beating them up to, to no, uh, no letting up on, on, on the altitude and, we really didn't think she would make it, uh, but she did, and she persevered and, and, and went through and, you know, did everything that the doctor and the, the medics said, and uh, she was able to, to summit. But it's definitely um, it's definitely something that you have to prepare for the best way possible, and that's through physical activity before uh, climbing. So training, you know, six to eight months in advance and getting your cardio in there and uh, being prepared for the altitude. Yeah, definitely. Well, I did read that uh, they say about 25,000 people attempt to climb it and, uh, every year, and two-thirds um, have to go back down, and many of them being uh, because of altitude sickness. So it's no small achievement. I mean, it might be one of the, the easier high-altitude things to climb, but we're definitely not talking about a, a small achievement here. There's definitely some exertion and, and care to be taken for sure. Definitely. Um, on the first climb summit night before we left camp, um, they do a, a briefing with everyone in the tent, you know, explaining what's going to happen on, on summit night. And they make it very clear to every climber that, you know, if you're experiencing any type of, um, altitude sickness, be it, you know, throwing up or diarrhea or, uh, massive headaches or even, um, hallucinations, they take you off the mountain. And they're quite serious in, in saying that. And, of course, they have your best interest at heart. And while it's kind of sucky that you may not make it to the top, um, they they want to make sure that you have a, the best experience possible. And maybe they'll bring you down for a little bit and reassess the, the situation and bring you back up the next night once you've uh, collected your <laughs> your health. Yeah, well, it's definitely better to to cut your losses and go back down so you can make the attempt again instead of leaving leaving yourself up there. Uh, many people are left on Everest for the same reason they they put a lot of energy training and and 
money into that uh, that summit attempt, and they don't know when to say when, and they end up staying up there, you know, yes. forever. And that's very sad. You, know, you just got to be able to to cut cut your losses and, and go back down if that's what you require. Mm-hmm. So I definitely wanted to point out um, you had shown me a couple of links on YouTube. Um, uh, to learn more, for people to learn more about the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. And I'll link those up uh, under the the podcast when it airs on the website so people can see that. We'll definitely link up the uh, the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation's site as well. So hopefully we can draw some people over there. And so the one thing I want to leave off with is recommendations. So if we have people out there thinking, you know, this would be a, a neat thing to try, um, how should I get started or, or what are some recommendations for people that might be thinking about doing something like this? For sure. Uh, I'd start off with just reminding everyone that this challenge, almost anyone can do. And I highly recommend you, you give it a go. Uh, for me, it was the most mentally, physically and emotionally challenging life experience that's actually changed my life moving forward. So you'll definitely have uh, an amazing time attempting the climb. I highly recommend you train, 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 give yourself at least six months and, you know, don't go all crazy like I did the first time. Um, but if you hit the gym, maybe three times a week and spend an hour or two in the gym doing some cardio, some weight training, and then spend your, your weekends hiking, uh, and building up your, your muscle resistance on the hikes, you know, maybe go for a hike on Saturday for two hours and then on Sunday another two hours and then maybe a few weeks later increase that time on the hike from two to four hours and just build build your uh, endurance. For the um, for climbing, always holy poly. Don't go fast. It's not a race to the top. You're not going to be that five-hour guy, <laughs> right? You want to take your time uh, going up to the top and, you know, it's okay to be the last person of the day to get to the top. At least you made it. Uh, it's not a race. Um, and then I think one of the most important pieces is uh, staying hydrated and fueling as much as you can. As you climb every day, you um, get higher and higher in the altitude and your body slowly starts to to shut down, it starts having, it starts to have difficulty processing food and your stomach tends to not want to take in food. Uh, so eat as much as you can, even if you don't feel like eating, eat, eat, eat. And if it makes it better before you leave for your trip, I highly recommend bringing some comfort food. Um, while the, the Tanzanian people make some delicious dishes, you might get sick of it after a while. Um, so you might want to bring like some granola bars from home or what I did was I brought some Quaker oatmeal and just had them boil some water for me. And I ate oatmeal for the last two days because I couldn't take in the pasta or the potatoes that they were cooking for me. Um, and you know, I think not having those comfort foods like peanut butter or Nutella or something that makes you feel happy and reminds you of home. Uh, it does have an impact on you. And I remember climbing each, each time with two different teams, people brought something from home like maple syrup or, or chocolate bars. And not only does it give you that energy that you want and that substance, but it also boosts morale around the, the, the campfire, if you will. And, uh, sharing your favorite treats amongst your team also, uh, it does something positive for the, the climb and definitely recommend you bring something like that along with you. <laughs> that's great advice yeah and just make sure you drink drink as much water as you can every day they recommend uh, at least four liters of water a day so while you're training for your you know six to eight months before the climb if you're not really into drinking water you got to start training your body to take in that water as well so while you're training or going on your hikes drink as much water as you can and start you know gauging how much water you're taking in and but before you climb i'm hoping you're taking in about three three liters a day because uh, you definitely need it yeah absolutely well definitely good advice i like that well jeff i appreciate you coming on the show um i am gonna promptly go inside and kick my kids out of the bedroom and get them ready so i can start raising money to go down and do kilimanjaro myself so i think that's a, a great idea and i don't think they need their bedrooms 
you know, get prepared <laughs> to come out in the tent. And that's thing too. Like a lot of, if I can go back to the Airbnb piece, a lot of people think you need a spare bedroom, but really you don't. You can start off with a tent in the backyard or even the couch. Um, travelers from around the world want to share the experience and they're not really looking for, or at least some of them aren't really looking for a bed. They're okay sleeping on a couch or a tent in the backyard. It's more about the experience versus having you know, a nice comfy bed all the time. So if you don't have that guest room, try try something else like a couch or a tent. Yeah, that's a good point. Or why not give up your own room and go live out in the tent while the people are here? That's you know? right. That's Do a little camping in your backyard. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, good deal. Well, Jeff, I really do appreciate your time coming on and telling us about Kilimanjaro. And I say it a lot uh, about adding so many things to my bucket list, but this is definitely one that I, I would like to try. I like it's it's like I said, it's you're still getting that taste of the altitude and that taste of the ascent without risking your life. Uh, like I said, it's no small feat to do this, but uh, I like the, t- the challenge and the uh, the option that it provides. And holy poly is my new uh, my new phrase. I like that. I'm going to keep it. It was a pleasure being on the podcast today, Travis. I appreciate it. All right. My pleasure, sir. You have a good evening. Thanks. You too.